Gracious God, thank you for the gift of this new day. Thank you for the gift of being made new people. And we pray that we would always be mindful of your mercies, that even when we feel tired or discouraged or exhausted, that you would empower us to walk in newness of life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Romans chapter 6. Paul writes, what then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death. So that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. All right. So, Paul begins, What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? Why is Paul having to even address this? Well, uh, for those of you who remember the previous chapters, Paul has already talked about how as the law increased, so sin increased, but as sin increased, grace increased all the more. You know, Paul has been going to great pains to say that whatever the problem was that started with Adam, where sin and death increased and increased and increased, that somehow God has used all that and through the Messiah has arranged matters to where grace is just accelerating at an even greater pace than sin and death. That basically, if this were a math formula, you know, the more sin grows, the more grace grows uh, even more. So if sin grows at a rate of 2x, grace grows at a rate of 4x. And so people are saying, well, then why not just sin? right? If every time we sin, God's grace grows, why not just have at it? You know, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Uh, won't that glorify God? 
And of course, Paul says, this is absolutely ridiculous. Um, For one, uh, the question is still framed in very transactional terms, right? Um, And very individualistic, uh, what's in it for me sort of terms. Um, It still assumes that continuing in sin is the most fun, happy way to live, the most sane way to live. Uh, And that if we just sin, that grace would abound all the more. And Paul says that's absolutely ridiculous. And he does so by drawing on imagery from the Exodus. And so just as the Israelites were slaves to Pharaoh, uh, but were set free, uh, in the same way we were slaves to sin, but we have been set free. And so, in a sense, it'd be like the Israelites being set free from um, Pharaoh's rule um, and then saying, well, why don't we just go back and be slaves again? Let's go back and and be slaves again under Pharaoh. We don't really like our freedom. And, of course, the irony is, if you've read the Old Testament, uh, people actually say just that. They grumble when they're in the desert, and they want to go back and live in Egypt. And Paul says... There is no going back. What you've been rescued from is uh, slavery, and so now you are to live your life in freedom. And uh, the moment you use your freedom to continue in sin, all that does is demonstrate that you're not really free. And what Paul really uses as the linchpin to kind of uh, help us understand this is baptism, He says, you've been baptized into Christ Jesus. And Paul uses a lot of imagery and metaphors. He says that our old self was crucified, right? That's clearly a metaphor. There's, you know, you've never been crucified in the way that Jesus was literally crucified. He says that the body of sin will be destroyed or has been destroyed. Um, That's a metaphor. Uh, Even being enslaved is a metaphor. And so Paul is drawing on so many metaphors to try to get us to see that we now have a different solidarity, that baptism is really a transferring of solidarity. We are removed from the kingdom of death and then plunged into the Messiah and his realm so that, Paul says in verse 4, we might walk in newness of life. And this newness of life that Paul speaks of, it's not adherence to a set of commandments, but rather a freedom fueled by the Holy Spirit, whereby we embody appropriately whatever the values of the kingdom of God are in the circumstances where we find ourselves. And so, you know, one thing I want to bracket for a potential conversation for us to have is what is the difference between walking in newness of life and keeping the law? You know, what is the difference between walking in newness of life and being a quote-unquote good person? Um, Because Paul's vision is that we are to walk in newness of life, that something has died, something has been reborn, that we are now united with the Messiah— and that something different should happen in our life as a result. And in verse 9, 
Paul really hammers this home when he says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For those of you who have been with me in this study, you know this idea of dominion is really important for Paul because dominion is what the glory of humanity looks like before the fall. Dominion is not domination. Dominion is what Adam had in the garden where he was exercising a wise stewardship over the created realm. And so the problem, as Paul frames it, is that we gave up our dominion. And so death um, and sin is what had dominion over humanity. And so Paul says, look, death no longer has dominion over Jesus. And because you belong to Jesus, death has no dominion over you. Sin has no dominion over you. Once again, you're free, he says. You're free to walk in newness. You're free to be Adam again in the garden before he ate the piece of fruit. You're free to be God's covenant partner, right? This is good news, Paul says. And in verse 11, he says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Uh, the Greek word translated consider is reckon. Uh, and for those of you who have been part of this study, you know that reckon is a big word for Paul. Um, um, he says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and remember, reckoning is an accounting metaphor. It's, it's like Paul's basically saying, hey, people, go ahead and do the math. You know, let's, let's weigh the facts. Let's add it up. And if you do all the mathematics, uh, it makes a lot of sense for you to see yourself as no longer living under the dominion of sin and death, no longer living under the dominion of fear and hate. But do the math and place yourself uh, with Jesus, who has defeated death, and you now get to uh, walk in newness of life. And that's what he means when he says, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Because the irony is that whenever we are, quote-unquote, uh, free to sin, we're enslaved. But whenever we submit ourselves and become servants of God, we find a new freedom. And so in verse 13, Paul says, no longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness. It's almost like Paul has this view where we are going to offer our body, our mind, our emotions, and our heart to something. Like as a human being, we're going to offer all that we are to something. And Paul says, are you going to offer it to wickedness and selfishness and hate, or will you offer it to God? And then he basically reminds us that what baptism is, what baptism is at its core is a transferring of solidarities to where we no longer live in the realm of sin and death. We've been mysteriously taken out of it, and we've been plunged into this different reality. And so Paul says, because that's where you live, because that's where God has placed you, offer your body, your mind, your heart, 
you know, Paul says your members, but that's what he means. Offer those to God, and that's what it means to walk in newness of life. It's not the same thing as keeping a law. It's something different. And what that difference is, maybe we can talk about. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there, and we'll see uh, what questions you have about first half of Romans 6. Verse 15, what then should we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you having once been slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and that you, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, and to greater and greater iniquity. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness for sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So what advantage did you then get from the things of which you're now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you've been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the second half of Romans 6 really seems to make many of the same points the first half does, only accentuates them a bit. But Paul doesn't introduce a new theme, but really kind of goes deep into this idea that no human being is his own master or her own master, that to be a human is to serve something. And so the Greek word here is doulos. Uh, Sometimes that word is translated servant. Sometimes it's translated slave. It it really doesn't matter. It's the same word we find in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul writes that Christ Jesus, though in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to cling to, but emptied himself and took the form of a doulos, took the form of a slave or a servant. And the question being asked in this chapter is, what will we serve? We will be a slave, but will we be a slave to sin or a slave to God, a servant to sin or a servant to God? And essentially, Paul says that if you serve sin— if you serve the flow of the world, if you serve injustice, if you serve hatred, if you serve selfishness, if you serve, you know, all the various things that we can serve when we are not um, um, serving God, that the end of those things is death, which is Paul's way of saying it doesn't go anywhere good. Um, And then the irony, of course, is that if we become... Uh, servants of God, here Paul says servants of obedience, but it's just language, that the irony there is that this is what freedom is. 
And so in Paul's worldview, freedom is something of a paradox that uh, none of us are inherently free. Uh, God has to set us free. And after we have been set free, if we then choose to serve the God who set us free in the first place, that we then experience the freedom of God himself. Um, And so verse 17, uh, Paul says, thanks be to God, having once been slaves of sin, uh, you become obedient from the heart. And this idea of obedience from the heart is really, really important for Paul. Um, One could keep the law in the Old Testament, but not keep that law from the heart. And this idea of obedience from the heart is central. Uh, And in verse 22, Paul introduces the word sanctification. Uh, Now that you've been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage is sanctification. Uh, That word comes from the Greek hagios, which means consecration or inner purification. It's basically the process through which the Holy Spirit conforms our heart more deeply to the heart of God. And so when you hear in the prophet Jeremiah, I will give them a new heart, I will remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, that's really what sanctification is. It is either the refining of our heart or the giving of a new heart in other metaphors. And the reason this is important for Paul is because he's been talking about justification, which is really a change in status. And for Paul, the power of the gospel is not only our legal or covenantal status, but also the transformation of human character through the reign of grace. And I'm going to say that again. It's about the transformation of human character through the reign of grace. And both of those have to come together. For Paul, the only way that human beings are actually transformed is through grace, not through law, not through society, not through education. It happens through grace. And he sums this up in verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can contrast that with Romans 4.4, where Paul says, now to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. And so this contrast between Uh, wages and gifts, that goes all the way back to Genesis 15, where Paul says, uh, where God says to Abraham, that your reward will be very great. And so this is kind of a subtle tie-in to Romans 4.4 and Genesis 15, where Paul basically says, um, because we recall that um, in Romans 4.4, the word wages could also be translated reward, Um, it's kind of ironic. Basically, what Paul says is, if you serve sin, your reward is death. Like, that's the reward you get. Like, if you live your life for yourself, the only reward you get is death, which is really a catch-all for everything bad. But then Paul says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And everything about that for Paul is meaningful. The eternal life piece is meaningful, 
right? So for Paul, this actually has a culmination. Uh, this human story is going somewhere. Um, there is this thing called eternal life that awaits us. Um, but also um, the idea of it all being a free gift. Paul really wants to hammer that home. He doesn't want anyone to have a leg to stand on that they haven't been given as a gift. And so we think back to Romans 1 and 2, why is Paul so eager to knock us so low? Because he wants us to know that what we have been given is a gift. Because the moment we know what we have is a gift, we cease to live lives whereby we uh, feel entitled and we judge other people and we actually think that we got here through our own goodness and cleverness and power. Paul wants none of that. He says it's all a gift, and the more we know that, the more it leads to this process of sanctification. 